1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I think we're bringing kind of a a sequel episode, but a sequel to multiple prequels. Uh, What streams are coming together on this one?
1: All right. Well, for starters, uh, we're following up on a previous episode we did about um, Quetzalcoatl. Uh, This was an episode that dealt with this this deity of uh, pre-Columbian Mesoamerican traditions, Mm -hmm. this uh, plumed serpent being. And uh, and, the, and in that episode, uh, we we discussed uh, uh, you know the the myths surrounding it, the tradition surrounding it, as well as its ties into uh, paleontology mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, with with the uh, the, the prehistoric uh, uh, Quetzalcoatlus, which is named for this deity.
0: Right. You know, just recently in town at the uh, the Fernbank Science Museum, they had an exhibit on pterosaurs. Uh, of course, Quetzalcoatlus is you know the. The, the greatest, biggest, yes. Yeah. Well, I think there may actually have been. There was some dispute about this while I was there. There may be indications of a larger one, mm. um, but yeah, Qu- the Quetzalcoatlus has long, at least, been understood to be the the largest known
1: of the pterosaurs. Yeah, so big that there have at times been competing theories as to whether it actually flew or if it just shambled around like a, you know, this big walking winged creature and just mm-hmm. scavenged from the, uh, you know, the, the seaside. But they had a like
0: full model and full cast of this creature mm-hmm. there uh, up in the air where you could. You know, compare your own puny, delicious body to this powerful predator that would have – sorry to get sidetracked. The thing about those pterosaurs that's most terrifying <laughs> is not uh, not what they look like when they're in flying posture, but how they walk. You know, yeah. this is a thing that we uh, we've come to understand more over time because there used to be this debate about what exactly their, their uh, locomotion would look like when they weren't in flight. Would they just crawl on vertical surfaces or something? But now we, we have a pretty good idea of how pterosaurs generally walked around on flat ground. And it, it just looks awful. It <laughs> <laughs> Looks like you know this weird jumbly membranous robot. It's it's amazing. You should look it
1: up. So that was a case where we had a, you know a later fossil find, and then they named the species after. This Mesoamerican serpent god, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we didn't get into any actual fossil connections beyond that. Uh, in other episodes, though, we have discussed this idea of geomythology. We've we've uh, we've devoted uh, whole episodes to, to generally looking at some sort of mythological monster and saying. You know, asking the obvious question—a question that people have been asking for for quite a while—were were these ideas of be it dragons or or cyclopses, whatever? W- but were they were they were they inspired by fossils that were discovered by ancient peoples?
0: Yeah, was it pure imagination, or was it based on something they'd seen? And if mm-hmm. it was based on something they'd seen, was it you know an exaggerated account of a live animal, or maybe a misinterpretation of bones or or fossils that had been been made from the bones of long dead creatures. And it's not hard at all to see how, say, a dragon might be inspired by. The skull of a dinosaur, you know, especially like maybe a large theropod dinosaur. Imagine coming across that when you didn't know there was such a thing as dinosaurs. Uh, and, and there are many ways that the geological features of fossils can make them seem especially mystical and, and like they're some kind of monster with supernatural properties. A great example of this – is given—this uh, th- was in our last discussion where we talked about the work of Adrian Mayer, who's going to come up again in today's episode, and we'll brief you a bit more on who she is in a, in a moment. But we talked about her book, The First Fossil Hunters, Paleontology in Greek and Roman Times. And one of the examples she talks about in that book that I remember standing out in my head was this interesting example that in some regions, calcite and selenite crystals form inside fossilized bones, uh, which could have been connected to tails of gemstones with in dragons' heads. Ooh.
1: So let's talk about Adrian Mayer. So uh, born in 1946, still uh, active in the world today. Stanford University historian of ancient science and a classical folklorist who specializes in geomythology. Yeah, and she's written several books of interest, including a 2018 book on gods and robots in mythology. Yeah, all about Talos. Yeah not all about
0: Talos, but Talos features you know he's in there, yeah. Yeah.
1: But uh, you also probably remember us uh, discussing uh, her 2000 book, uh, The First Fossil Hunters, Paleontology in Greek and Roman Times, which deals with these very questions. Yeah. Um, in uh, you know, in the ancient Greeks in depicting and imagining these various creatures, were they commenting on fossil finds?
0: Yeah, and in that episode, we talked about a bunch of examples put forth by Mayer where discovery of fossils by ancient peoples could have given rise to legends of mythical beasts. We just talked about the dragon example, but a few others like the idea that legends of the fearsome griffin, you know, the jealous gold hoarding creature with a lion's body and the, you know, the wings, that creature of the Gobi Desert could have been inspired by the discovery of protoceratops fossils, Mm. uh, though we also discussed arguments against this connection. Um, And another one that was very popular was the idea that tales of the cyclops could have been inspired by elephant skulls, which of course have this large single uh, hollow, or socket in the center that could easily be mistaken for a giant single eye socket in the middle of the face, though it actually is the nasal cavity that connects to the
1: trunk. But she also turned her attention to the world of the plumed serpent in her 2005 book, Fossil Legends of the First Americans. So in in this, she points out that pre-Columbian Aztec codices and Inca traditions describe the remains or uh, uh, or seem in in her estimation to to describe the remains of mammoths and other creatures uh, from the past, including giant birds. Hmm. And of course, this is where we come back to. Uh, Quetzalcoatl because Quetzalcoatl again is generally depicted as this this great serpent with feathers this reptilian being that is also bird-like. and it's really kind of surprising looking back on it that we didn't actually explore this avenue because it makes so much sense right like you're you're talking about this 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 amorphous idea and all generally all Ideas in mythology over the the landscape of time are amorphous. They shift this way and that. Uh, But essentially, this sounds like it could line up rather well with pterosaur remains or Mm -hmm. even the remains of of non-flying dinosaurs, you know, any kind of a sauropod. You, you You could latch onto any of these, any evidence of some sort of great creature. And lo and behold, here is the evidence of Quetzalcoatl.
0: Yes, though the, uh, the link between fossils and the possible inspiration of, of a plumed serpent being like Quetzalcoatl is not the only, uh, say, Mesoamerican or South American example where we, we have a pretty good idea that bones of large creatures could have inspired belief in uh, supernatural beings. A big example that comes in with, uh, with Mesoamerican and South American mythology is the belief in giants –
1: Yes, and there's, a, yeah, there's there's an interesting history there and one that, that uh, Mayer spends a lot of time with. So she points out that after Cortez arrived in the New World, the Tlaxcalteca people aligned with him against their enemies, the Aztecs, mm-hmm. and they, uh, they brought the conquistador gigantic bones, and they told him the story of how their ancestors had, had found these lands filled with these evil giants, and that they subsequently vanquished most of them, and the survivors were eventually just too few uh, to continue and died out, and look. Here are the bones that are proof of this story.
0: Yeah, I actually wanted to read from a firsthand account of what happened at this event. This is a firsthand account by Bernal Diaz de Castillo, uh, one of the Spanish conquistadors who was working under Cortez. Now, keep in mind, anything we read here is just Castillo's version of the story written many years after the fact. And it's very possible he's not remembering everything accurately or not understanding or reporting correctly. But this, this firsthand account is what we have here. So he's speaking to some of the Tlaxcalteca people and, uh, and he's asking them, uh, quote, How it was that they came to inhabit that land and from what direction had they come? And how was it that they differed so much from and were so hostile to the Mexicans, as he's referring to the Aztecs, uh, seeing that their countries were so close to one another? Quote, They said that their ancestors had told them that in times past there had lived among them men and women of giant size with huge bones and because they were very bad people of evil manners that they had fought with them and killed them and those of them who had remained died off so that we could see how huge and tall these people had been. They brought us a leg bone of one of them which was very thick and the height of a man of ordinary stature and that was the bone from the hip to the knee. I measured myself against it and it was as tall as I am, although I am a fair size. <laughs> I wonder if he's getting a little defensive there. <laughs> I'm not that short. They brought other bones, uh, or they, they brought other pieces of bones like the first, but they were already eaten away and destroyed by the soil. We were all amazed at seeing those bones and felt sure that there must have been giants in this country. And our captain Cortez said to us that it would be well to send that great bone to Castile so that His Majesty might see it. So we sent it with the first of our agents who went there. So I'd love to know what happened with that bone, but apparently that's a, that's a, a sad mystery that doesn't turn out well.
1: Yeah, uh, Mayer writes that she, she tried to, to track it down uh-huh. and, uh, and, and couldn't, couldn't quite find it. Um, but she points out that this, this myth and this, well, this account of the myth, you know, it does reveal you know, an, an understanding of several things. It reveals an understanding of extinction, for example, right. that a sufficiently reduced population is doomed. Yeah. It's just not going to bounce back. So, the, they didn't have to kill all of the giants.
0: If they just reduced the population enough, the giants died out naturally.
1: Yeah. Uh, and um, and uh, she also points out, yeah, that those bones presented uh, by the Tlaxcalteco the were sent back to Spain, apparently, though there seems no surviving record of them after that. Uh, however, based on later fossils sent back to Spain and those displayed in Cortez's palace uh, uh, there in, um, in Mexico, we can judge that these were probably mammoth bones. Like it seems a, it, it's, it's not even a, you know, a, a, it's a very safe guess.
0: I'm interested by this phenomenon of people seeing bones of large extinct megafauna and not just not knowing what they were but concluding that they're some form of human, you know? Yeah. And And obviously this is not just the conclusion reached by the Tlaxcalteca people. This is like a, a widespread – I mean it, the Spanish seem to think the same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, part of it is, you know, by virtue of our, our modern understanding of fossils and the ascent of man and knowing exactly what sort of uh, humanoid uh, and primate creatures uh, lived uh, that we know lived in, in, uh, in prehistoric times. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then on the other side, it's like all we all have stories of giants. The Europeans brought with them, the Spanish brought with them knowledge of stories of giants. You no, know, the Spanish, they, they totally believed in giants yeah, it's kind of crazy that all the things that are not lining up with Cortez here, like uh-huh. obvi- like this is a doomed scenario, and we should really drive, remind everyone that Cortez is a destroyer oh, yeah. uh, here in this, uh, in this encounter. Uh, but this is like one thing that they instantly both have in common is mm-hmm. the the belief in giants. So, Mayer writes that uh, that Father uh, Jose de Acosta, who lived uh, 1539 through 1600, uh, traveled to Mexico and recorded native oral histories. And he was, when he spoke to the Tlaxcalteca, they described the giants of old as beings that dwelt in caves and used great clubs and wooden swords. They quote, "Pulled down trees as if they had been stalks of lettuces." <laughs> Uh, And Mayer argues that this brings to mind the behavior of elephants Hmm. and that the the giants, uh, again, might be essentially ancestral memories of the Colombian mammoths that definitely lived in the area, that we definitely have the fossil evidence of, that we see evidence of in the fossils displayed in Cortez Palace, Mm -hmm. that it's kind of through the telephone game of oral tradition and, and uh, via the remaining fossil evidence of their bones like this is the, the the giants the giant mythology that remains right
0: so we know that these giant extinct mammals did stretch in the range as far south as like uh Central America right
1: yeah as far south as uh, Costa Rica I, I think I was reading and uh and up into the northern United States though then again I
0: do think I mean, I wonder about that. I mean, that is a long time for a legend like that to persist, even in altered form. Mm -hmm. The the Colombian mammoth, which was uh, the species that would have spread that far south, right? Right. The woolly mammoth was a further north species. So, the Colombian mammoth, this huge... Being, it went extinct probably like like ten to eleven thousand years ago. We think certainly not impossible for you know elements of myth to exist across that time span. But I wouldn't let too much hinge on that
1: inference because that's a long time. A lot can happen certainly from the human standpoint in that in that amount of time. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out that it wasn't just the um, the 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 Tlaxcalteca. The, the Inca also had tales of ancestral victories over giants. Uh, in in this case, though, uh, the giants were destroyed by fire from heaven. Oh
0: yeah. So these myths were recorded in uh, one of the places they were recorded was in a source in the sixteenth century. Uh, one one of, uh, one of these was uh, by Cieza de León in the Chronicle of Peru, published in fifteen fifty three. So the people telling this story were uh, people living in – I think it was Peru at the time, modern Ecuador, who told stories about how their ancestors in ancient times had uh, had been invaded by these people from the sea who were evil and destructive giants who landed at a point called uh, Point Santa Elena in what's now Ecuador. And uh, I want to read from uh, Cieza de Leon's record of the stories that were told to him by the native peoples. He says, quote, they arrived on the coast in boats made of reeds as big as large ships, a party of men of such size that from the knee downwards their height was as great as the entire height of an ordinary man, though he might be of good stature. <laughs> so, this, yet again, it's like part of the leg is as tall as a guy, even though he's pretty tall. Right. They're making it clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Their limbs were all in proportion to the deformed size of their bodies, and it was a monstrous thing to see their heads— with hair reaching to the shoulders. Their eyes were as large as small plates. They had no beards and were dressed in the skins of animals, on, uh, others only in the dress which nature gave them, and they had no women with them. And then so Ciesa de Leon uh, goes on to tell more about the story of the conflict between uh, uh, the people and these giants. Cieza de Leon does not strike me as a great narrator. He kind of disparages the people who are telling him the story. Uh, he refers to their vulgarity and says that they're prone to exaggeration. So I, I think he's he's got a patronizing attitude, it seems like here. Uh, but he also embellishes their account by adding Christian theological material mm. to it. Uh, so later on, he says... Uh, Uh, quote, all the natives declare that God our Lord brought upon them a punishment in proportion to the enormity of their offense. And he's talking about the giants here. A fearful and terrible fire came down from heaven with a great noise, out of the midst of which there issued a shining angel with a glittering sword, with which at one blow they were all killed, and the fire consumed them. There only remained a few bones and skulls, which God allowed to remain without being consumed by the fire as a memorial of the punishment. So that's interesting. There's Mm -hmm. there's this idea that some bones are left for us to see. And so what about these bones? Well, Adrienne Mayer writes about this in her account. She says that in uh, 1543 there was a deputy governor of Trujillo named uh, Juan de Olmos who decided to investigate these stories about the extinct giants and their bones by conducting a paleontological excavation. So that's pretty interesting, right? We got the 16th century here and they're trying to excavate the bones of extinct beings.
1: Yeah, essentially engaging in in, in paleontology, which is one of Mayer's frequent uh, points, is that is that when uh, when you're engaging with these fossils and you're trying to figure out what they were and how to fit into to history, even you know you're even though you're dealing with say you know a version of history that is uh, influenced by mythology uh, and perhaps even the mythology of some you know. Uh, um, conquerors who have just arrived mm-hmm. then you, you're but you're still engaged in the exercise of trying to understand fossils,
0: yeah, and that that's what uh, one day almost was apparently doing. so uh, Mayer writes that almost And his workers, they went and they dug up pits in this valley that they'd been directed to by the native peoples uh, where the giants had been uh, reportedly destroyed or put down by this angel from heaven or or where they'd been consumed by the fire or put down by this being from the sky. And then uh, so they apparently found some things. They found skulls that seemed to look sort of human. And remember, again, the comparison Mm -hmm. between like the idea of the cyclops and the giant elephant skulls.
1: Yeah, Yeah, like it is unlike so many – you know, large herbivore uh, skulls, the elephant skull does not look uh, – you know, it's not a long skull. It is not like the skull of a, a deer or even like a hippo or something. It does seem to have like the vertical alignment of a, of a primate skull. Mm-hmm. Though
0: then again, these, these bones were found to not be exactly human in proportion. Uh, and this was explained away by the fact that, well, the, in the story, these giants, you know, they've got all these uh, deformities. You know, that's, mm-hmm. it's almost like an indication of their monstrousness which is, is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy right we're looking for human shaped things that aren't correctly human shaped because they were monsters therefore when the things aren't correctly human shaped almost can can conclude yeah okay we found the bones of giants here and and apparently they did so that you know they dug up these bones they said yep uh,
1: looks like there were giants and Mayer points out points to other sources as well on this such as a uh, leading mexican archaeologist dr leonardo uh, lopez lujan who uh, uh, backs up the notion that Mesoamerican myths of giants and ogres originated in at least the discovery of fossil remains? Mm-hmm. Without getting into the sort of oral history thing, but uh, but I, I should probably add that, like there's there's the there's the oral history of the creatures, but then there's just the oral history of finding the fossils, right? And I think that's that's probably more what we're talking about here. Uh, you know, somebody found these bones once and uh, maybe they kept the bones, maybe they didn't. But there is the story of the encounter and then the subsequent interpretation of what the bones mean.
0: OK, I think maybe we should take a quick break. We'll be right back with
1: more. All right, we're back. So, you know, I want to uh, drive home that, you know, we we're talking about uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl and some of these other traditions. You know, th- there's there's a lot we don't know about these cultures. Mm. Uh, again. Cortez and those who came after him uh, they were a, a destroying force mm-hmm. they were conquerors they brought with them uh, death and disease and uh, and and in often cases like a willingness uh, like a, a, a an intent to destroy the culture of the people uh, that they subjugated,
0: yeah, so, and did that in many cases through literally destroying written records,
1: right. So you know, there luckily, some things survived, but so much was destroyed. Uh, we're talking about the in the Mesoamerican world, uh, initially, like like seven hundred years ago. and uh, and yet it, it, as, as as is often pointed out in case was pointed out by uh, University of New Mexico's Professor David M. Johnson that we know more about Athens, uh, Greece of 2,000 years ago, or we know more about Hebraic traditions of 3,000 years ago than we know about Mesoamerica 700 years ago.
0: Because mainly of the destruction of the conquistadors. Yeah,
1: the the destruction uh, that they wrought on the cultures, uh, the the destruction of codices uh, that the Aztecs and the Maya kept. Uh, And on top of this, the hieroglyphic style books of the Aztecs uh, you know they were there to aid in the memorization of oral literature. So you know with uh, you know you're, so you're destroying it on both ends. If you're destroying the the culture that 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 retains the the oral tradition, but then you're also destroying the books that enabled it to begin with. Um, you know so it's it's often a taxing exercise to try and reassemble uh, you know what some of these stories and traditions actually were. But Quetzalcoatl. Um, As we discussed in our previous episode, uh, they're they're basically like two major different um, uh, sagas of of it or him. They're sort of the more primal myths and then mm. the more humanoid myths.
0: Yeah, that was the distinction I remember. It's sort of like the celestial Quetzalcoatl, like the creator being, and then there's like the human version or the human embodiment.
1: Right. And and ultimately, I think that's something that, that, that ended up lining up a lot with sort of Christian traditions, the idea of there being sort of a, a part one that's very cosmic and and uh, and and a little harder to to grasp, and then a second part that's a little more human and it's telling. Yeah, but in both of these, more like a hero legend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in both of these cases, though, it's really important to drive home that Quetzalcoatl was was not like a like a bloodthirsty god. I think sometimes there is this tendency to. If someone says Aztec god, then you're going to instantly think about blood sacrifices or something yeah, like that.
0: Because of Q, the winged serpent in the movie. Maybe. Right. You know, <laughs> you're
1: going to think of that. But, but uh, Quetzalcoatl was, uh, by, by all the accounts we were looking at, you know, this was a, a benign, uh, benevolent even um, uh, uh, entity. This mm-hmm. was, uh, this was a, a divine being that uh, represented uh, peace and not uh, bloody warfare or anything of the sort. So I just want to drive that home before we we continue here. And you're probably wondering uh, again. Like, okay, you're talking about giants, you're talking about elephants, but what about Quetzalcoatl? What does Mayer write about uh, the winged serpent? And she uh, she she does mention him. She uh, she writes uh, that in the Florentine Codex, which is a 16th century ethnographic research study in Mesoamerica conducted by a Spanish friar. Um, that the the human Quetzalcoatl uh, was said to stop to rest with his followers on a journey at a place that was considered holy because, quote, the marks which Quetzalcoatl left upon the stone with his hands when he rested there, when he sat down, and he supported himself on the rock by his hands, they sank deeply as if in mud did the palms of his hands seek down. Likewise, his buttocks, as they touched the rock, sank deeply. Wow. And Hol- the holy buttock marks, yeah, of of uh, of the winged serpent, and the place was known as uh, Timec Palco, the impression of the hands. So we we ultimately have have no current knowledge or evidence of this place, no further descriptions or el- illustrations, even in this uh, this codex. But Mayer suspects they might have been quote a genuine track site, a uh, track site being where we have the fossilized tracks of. Uh, of, of creatures, a genuine track site of some extinct creature, or else there were carvings that resembled fossilized prints, perhaps made to illustrate or commemorate an episode in the Quetzalcoatl epic. And I think the implication is in that case, you know, it could be something, if it was artificial, if it was man-made, it mm-hmm. could have been inspired by actual fossilized tracks that had been discovered. Or, uh, she doesn't mention this, but I mean, I could imagine it could be a combination of the two, like the uh, actual fossils that were then embellished uh, by by humans that are interpreting it as being part of a divine story, mm-hmm. she also points out that uh, in terms of extinction, the Aztecs believed that there were four previous ages that were destroyed by cataclysm, mm-hmm. and the survivors of these ages, monsters and giants, were sometimes encountered, uh, 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 you know, in subsequent ages, and. Uh, Quetzalcoatl is said to have been created – said to have created the bones of fifth-age humans by mixing blood with the ground bones of our fourth-age ancestors. Mm. So, you know, there's already an emphasis on bones here and Mayer thinks it's suggestive of bone-grinding medicinal practices seen elsewhere among Native American peoples. Uh, but she she also stresses that she found nothing in the Spanish accounts of Mesoamerican peoples regarding, um, you know, bone-grinding practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, she does point to a 20th century practice in the village of uh, Charcas on the northern border of the old Aztec Empire. Famed for its mines, uh, the villagers uh, c- collected large fossil bones known as the uh, – and uh, I apologize for my Spanish here – Huesos de Espanto. The bones of fear, <laughs> uh, these would have been the bones of the old giant and the, the old giants uh, that, that are now on the earth. And the, the ground powder was used in a potion to calm anxiety and fear. Wow. And she points out that this actually lines up with the use of ground dragon bones in uh, in Chinese traditional medicine uh, and in the uh, treatment of fossils by European apothecaries. Um who <laughs> you know? Who would? Maybe, of course, uh, I think we've discussed on stuff to blow your mind before about uh, the use of of, of mummified remains oh, yeah. by apothecaries, but also fossil bones as well.
0: Yeah, mummy paste. <laughs> Wait a minute. In in the Chinese traditional medicine, what what are the ground dragon bones? What bones end up becoming supposedly dragon bones?
1: Ooh, I'm not sure on that actually. But it, I, it does bring to mind that we we're perhaps talking about fossils here. Yeah. That's the—we'll have to do a part three where we talk about uh, the use of fossils in, Ch- in Chinese traditional medicine and, and uh, Chinese folklore. I, I'm, I'm offhand. I can't—I don't know for sure if Mayer has uh, has written about uh, Chinese traditions uh, um, exclusively in any book or perhaps that's an upcoming book. All right. Well, let's take one more break. When we come back, uh, we will continue to discuss um, geomythology— and uh, Quetzalcoatl. All right, we're back. So
0: last time we talked about Quetzalcoatl, we obviously made the connection to pterosaur species because of the giant pterosaur Quetzalcoatlus, which gets its name from this magnificent mm-hmm. Mesoamerican god. Um, so, I wonder, could there actually be any connection between pterosaur fossils and uh, and the belief in a, a giant plumed serpent god? On one hand, I would tend to assume, eh, I don't know about that because pterosaurs are not really uh, – they're not really serpentine, are they?
1: Uh, that's true. Uh And then, of course, another, and this is a a key thing that we're always arguing, is that fossils are not necessary to dream up these creatures. Of course. uh, As we discussed in the Quetzalcoatl episode previously, like the god embodies the snake and the bird. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's already embodying natural creatures that inspire various ideas about the world, the cosmos, and our role in it, and our relationship with nature. It's already this hybrid being, and therefore a like this this special kind of uh, of metaphor, yeah. in human understanding,
0: yeah. and uh, that's something to keep in mind with all of these cases where you know, geomythology is full of sort of interesting inferential hypotheses. It's hard. It's in most cases going to be really hard to make a solid case that, yes, a you know, a mythical beast or a legend or you know, something from an ancient religion is definitely inspired. By geological facts, geofacts like fossils, but you can often kind of infer there's a good chance that something like that could have happened. You just it's hard to know for sure.
1: Luckily, Mayer does go into this though. She does she does explore the the idea that you know the the question could actual winged fossil remains have influenced Mesoamerican traditions. Uh, and, you know, of course there would, there would be no room for oral traditions of encountering these creatures here. They would have been long extinct before, uh, you know the first humans were around, uh, in this area. But, uh, uh, of course, that hasn't stopped some cryptozoologist. She points out from claiming, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, otherwise. Uh, however, she does argue. Oh no, that's that,
0: <laughs> well. No, I was just thinking <laughs> of the crypto when cryptozoologists get involved. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't want to. Not all quote cryptozoologists are of the same caliber, right? But.
1: There's crypto. And this is something we. I feel like we should explore. There are there are certain. Scientific professionals. There are certain scientists who have given a lot of of thought to stuff like you know the yeti, mm-hmm. and and have done so in a reasonable fashion, and and uh, and put the scientific exploration first. There are, of course, more uh, less scientifically based and more you know overly enthusiastic. Um, uh, individuals out there who bear the cryptozoologist title.
0: Well, there are always going to be people who are excited about stories of, you know, any kind of interesting, uh, uh, unusual being of any kind Mm -hmm. because it somehow feeds into their fantastical worldview. Uh, I mean, I remember reading stories about how these native traditions of extinct races of giants in ancient Mesoamerica and and in uh, South America— Fed a lot of kind of like theological speculation among European Christians. You know, they'd read these stories and think, ah, oh, this means something about the Nephilim
1: or the giants of the earth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you can imagine that too. If you were um, like the, the spear point of a of a bloody, uh, you know, religious conquest of a new world, mm-hmm. and then you were you were you were learning about their traditions of of giants and their their belief in it. It almost is. Uh, it reminds me of uh, you know some of the ideas we've explored with witchcraft persecution. Yeah, uh, the idea that 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 some, on, on some level part of the um, the the reason for it was because if you by by sort of drawing these uh, these stories out of the, the victims of witchcraft per- persecution, you were creating uh, proof for a supernatural realm uh-huh. that uh, that backed up your own uh, failing religious ideas. Uh, But uh, that's kind of a a whole discussion unto itself. But at any rate, Mayer does – and she doesn't explore cryptozoological ideas in this. But she does argue that the thunderbird beliefs of North American uh, native peoples were likely inspired by uh, such fossils. And uh, and she asked uh, paleontologist James Clark – uh, who had worked with the Northeastern Mexican pterosaur fossils before, if 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 these remains uh, would have been likely to elect strong responses from ancient peoples. And he thought probably not. And there, his reasoning was that, okay, it's one thing to see a fully assembled pterosaur at your local science museum yeah. or in a you know in a book, and certainly if it's illustrated as a living creature. But when you look at the the actual fossil remains, and again, this is someone who'd worked with the uh, the actual uh, pterosaur fossil remains from uh, northeastern Mexico, he says you you end up looking at this just jumble of bones.
0: That's a really good point. When you see uh, the the impressions of pterosaur fossils in uh, in situ as they're found, they're often you know in say uh, the former flat bed of a body of water, and the indentations are just a tangled mess. Right. And I think a lot of this has to do with. In fact, often bird bones are the same way when they get fossilized. I think it has to do with sort of lightweight structure of the bones, uh, the way they just kind of get all collapsed together. That They don't seem to be as often um – uh, articulated and in full body posture, as you might get with a larger animal with more solid bones.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we can we're easily spoiled sometimes by the really nice fossil remains mm-hmm. uh, that we see with certain certain finds and certain species, where we see just a like an like an, a, a complete or near complete vision of what the creature looked like and how the bones were arranged, mm-hmm. but. That is that is not all fossils. Yeah. Uh, the, f- the the uh, you know the, the whole discipline of paleontology uh, entails a lot of reassembly of of of, of guesswork, mm-hmm. and and generally and often you know times some of these uh, even pterosaurs we're dealing with creatures where we, we have you know far short of a complete fossil. Sometimes even just a single bone, and uh, you're just having to to base everything off off of that, extrapolate based on other fossil remains.
0: Yeah, and I think it's true of pterosaurs especially, like even more so than dinosaurs, generally, Mm -hmm. that you have – that fossils as they're found are very often unimpressive until you start extrapolating what this living creature would have looked like.
1: However, Mayer writes that she thinks the giant pterosaur remains in southern Mexico might have been harder to miss and might have led to some of these tales of giant winged creatures. And this would have included uh, Aztlán, the Aztec homeland.
0: Hmm. Now, what about the? So we're not saying though that we think um, uh, pterosaurs would have inspired the belief in Quetzalcoatl just because these are these are very differently formed creatures, right? Mm-hmm. We must be talking about some kind of other being.
1: Well, yeah, and luckily there there are other flying creatures in Mesoamerican traditions. Uh, for instance, the um, the Yakwai people of Sonora believed in a great bird that lived on Skeleton Mountain or or Otom And uh, the the belief was that it preyed on humans. And uh, um, and then when a child hero killed it, its feathers turned into all the birds that live today. Uh, But the likely suspect in these myths, Mayer says, are reports of living California condors and the fossils of older condor species. So, you know, namely the giant raptors of the Ice Age. So these would have been more likely,
0: if inspired by the bones of a creature or a living creature, would have been a real bird of
1: prey rather than a pterosaur fossil. Right. And hopefully that makes more sense. Like just, yeah. the, you know, you're dealing with something, again, where there is there is the, the actual potential for an oral tradition to carry some uh, word about it. And then you also have on top of the fossilized condors, you have actual condors still in the world today that can be glimpsed and, and would have been glimpsed uh, by some of these people we're discussing here.
0: So if we're talking about direct fossil inspirations that could have possibly had something to do with Quetzalcoatl himself what we're probably talking about is the the alleged reports of the handprints
1: and the butt prints right right which certainly feels more like fossil like basically discovering fossil evidence of the thing that are you already believe in uh-huh. and maybe serving as a way to you know physically connect with uh, with with your religion and with this this deity. Uh, but but not the thing that inspires it outright, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's the idea we come back to time and time again. Anytime we discuss geomythology, mm-hmm. like sometimes it's a fun exercise to look at like could this could this fossil remain have entirely inspired this entity? Mm-hmm. But in most cases, it feels like there's there's a number of factors, and fossils are maybe just one of those factors. Yeah,
0: and it's hard to know for sure. Yeah, I mean it's one of those things where. You're almost never going to have a case where it's clear that it was inspired by a fossil legend. Though
1: you might have a few. Yeah, yeah. You know, interest. I was thinking about the. Actually, I was, uh, I was. Well, actually,
0: you know, I'd say one of the best cases of the pretty clear inspirations mm-hmm. are the ones where they bring out the bones, where uh, p- people wherever they are on Earth just have bones on hand that they keep as relics and say, "These are the bones so, of like these the, the mammoths. Yeah. yeah, like
1: this. The mammoth example that we discussed here is a is a I think a wonderful example of 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 actual yeah geomythology. Yeah, like because. That's what they said. They wasn't yeah. a situation where we're just later saying maybe they could have inspired by been inspired by these bones. Well, no, they brought the bones out.
0: Yeah, the bones were part of their interpretation. Now it is also possible that the myths actually predated the bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you can't rule that out. That's true. But it seems like it's a very good candidate that, that since they have the bones and they have this belief that they're that these are are linked. There's a causation link here.
1: Uh, you know. Um, I, I can't help but wonder uh, how Godzilla fits into all of this uh, because um because think about it, like Godzilla is ultimately you know certainly a fictional creature of mm-hmm. the modern era. But in some cases, when you consider like the secular world of popular culture, it's he's kind of a god. I mean, we when said Godzilla in the, you know the English name for, for uh, Gohedra. so it, it uh, m- more kind of an
0: old school god, right Yeah you know, maybe one of those gods like Poseidon that most of the time isn't nice
1: yeah that rises up out of the sea to, to destroy us uh, uh, and, but also there's a fossil connection because mm-hmm. Godzilla in his in his form is base, is basically based on the older interpretation of Tyrannosaurus Rex. Fossils. You know, we know today that Tyrannosaurus rex likely, uh, you know, uh, walked with its tail out in a, a vertical position, you know, in a, a balanced position. You know, the, the version that we see in Jurassic Park. Uh-huh. But the older interpretation was that it kind of stood more upright with its tail on the ground like Godzilla does. Right. So there's, a, there's maybe, a, you know, a, a dash of geomythology in Godzilla as well. <laughs> Um, I feel like we we might need to come back and do an episode on Godzilla again because uh, there was recently a paper that came out that looked at Godzilla's increase in size, how every film version that comes out makes Godzilla bigger, and comparing that to um, to uh, to certain cultural changes, uh, namely like how much money a given culture invests into its military. <laughs> uh, So uh, that might be fun to discuss. Anytime we can discuss Godzilla on the show, uh, uh, it's always a win.
0: The saddest thing is that they, they wouldn't make a direct sequel to Shin Godzilla even after they set one up. That, oh, is it, is it out of the question? Well, I, well, I mean I could be misunderstanding here. I think something happened where they, they couldn't make a sequel to Shin Godzilla because they were making this American movie that just came out, mm-hmm. King of the Monsters, which I haven't seen but I've heard isn't very good. Oh. Um, and I, I just want another uh, – more in the spirit of Shin Godzilla, please. Yeah, I mean that's Shin- like the best modern Godzilla
1: movie. Yeah. I mean I love – Probably all Godzilla movies. If you show me a Godzilla movie, I'm probably going to watch it and enjoy it. But Shin Godzilla was a a real, real treat. A Godzilla movie that made you think. I think I
0: tend to like the Japanese ones better than the the recent American ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Shin Godzilla has the best bureaucratic meetings.
1: <laughs> it does. It's. Yeah. Uh, I'm always describing it to my wife and uh, and saying, "Oh, you should see it. It's a. It's like a Godzilla movie, but it's full of meetings and uh-huh. uh, and so politicians we... talking to each other." And she's like, "Oh, that sounds awful." And I'm like, "No, no, it's really good. It's <laughs> just so you can't turn your head away from it." All right. Well, there you have it. Um, a follow up to a couple of past episodes, uh, like two prequels in one. And, uh, and hey, maybe a glance at the future. Let us know. Do you want to hear um, a whole another episode on Godzilla? Uh, do you want to hear more episodes on geomythology? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Your uh, your input is important to us. Uh, whether it's correcting us on something we get wrong, or just uh, you know helping helping us to grow as we you know that's part of the whole purpose of the show is that we feel like through exploring these topics. We're growing and hopefully, you know, listeners are growing as well and discovering uh, uh, new uh, uh, facts about the world, new avenues to explore on in their own time. Um. So let us know. There are a number of ways to reach out to us. You can find us online at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's The Mothership. That's where you'll we'll find all the episodes, links out to some social media accounts, uh, a t-shirt store, and as always, if you want to support the show, one of the best things you can do is to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Make sure you have subscribed, and make sure you've subscribed to Invention, our uh, show about techno-history. Uh, it's a, It's a tremendous amount of fun. Each episode, a different invention, a discussion of what came before, how this invention changed, Things and what came after it.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind dot com.